Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 702. The Naked Sciences. Good morning, Chris. Morning, Eusebius. How are you doing? I'm very good, thank you. We continue to be fascinated by the possibilities of life on Mars uh, but along the way, there's an interesting story, I believe, recently about possibly incredibly high levels of methane. Well, it depends whether you call 20 to 30 parts per billion incredibly high levels. But relative to what's normally there, yeah, this is 20 or 30 fold higher than would normally be detected. Just backing up very slightly, there's a rover called Curiosity, which touched down in August 2012 on Mars. And its mission is to explore a region of Mars called the Gale Crater. And what it's looking for are the chemical constituents in both the ground and the atmosphere that might be hallmarks of various processes, including life processes. One of the instruments on board is a laser spectrometer. What Curiosity is doing is pulling in samples of the Martian air and then firing a laser beam across that air. And depending upon the frequency of laser that's used, you can get it to pick up different species or chemicals or, which are in that air. And one of the things it suddenly registered in the, in recent weeks is a big surge in methane, which is normally present at one part per billion, and it began to register between 20 and 30 parts per billion. So this is a 20 or 30-fold surge. So in other words, there's some kind of plume of methane that drifted by all of a sudden. Now, Curiosity doesn't know where it's come from, but it does know it was there, and it was gone as soon as it appeared. So this was a very sudden, almost like a convulsive belch of methane that came from Mars somewhere. They're looking for it also from space now to see if they can see what the source is because they could drive Curiosity to where it is because the fact that it was pretty fast to disappear suggests that the source must be close to where Curiosity is. Now, the other important thing is to then find out how it could be being made. And the reason scientists are excited by methane is that methane could mean life because there are lots of bacterial processes here on Earth which produce methane as a byproduct. These are called methanogenic bacteria. And usually they occur where there is a lot of organic matter which is trapped underneath the surface in an oxygen-poor environment. And methane is the product that's made as the bacteria break down that organic matter in, in that oxygen-poor environment. So if there is something similar going on on Mars, this could be a signal that there are microorganisms there or that there once were microorganisms. What we're not going to know, though, is, that, is, is what the composition isotopically of this methane is. There are different chemical forms of the elements. These are called isotopes, and life tends to favour the use of certain isotopes over others for various reasons. So if you detect the ratio of the different chemical forms in something you detect, then you can tell whether it was produced predominantly by a life process or just some natural process. And methane can be produced by lots of natural processes as well. So it's been exciting. It's got everyone talking because it moves us a step closer to, well, you know, we're going to nail this once and for all now. But we're still left a bit in the dark. So excuse the horrible pun coming up. Watch this space. <laughs> Dudu, good morning. Good morning, Sirius. Good morning, Chris. 
Um, you know, this is the question that I'm going to ask. I was actually asked by my now 11-year-old son. Mm. It says, if, if flies are high transmitters of infections and leading to diseases, why do we have flies in our ecosystem? And of course, the answer <laughs> is, don't ask me, ask Chris. <laughs> <laughs> That's a question to you. Thank you. <laughs> what's, the, what's the name of the Chris, young man who I'll asked fly- the question? His name is Ngosini Pidelamini. Okay. Well, this one's for you, and there are certainly no flies on you as well uh, to ask such a good question. And the answer is that there is something living on Earth where it, wherever there is an opportunity for something to live on Earth, part of nature's rich tapestry. And the reason I say that is because the planet, the biosphere, creates ecological niches. What's a niche? Well, you have energy coming into the Earth from the sun. The sun energy is soaked up by green things, chiefly plants, but also some photosynthesizing bacteria. They capture the energy of the sun and turn it into a chemical form, and then everything else downstream of there is living off that energy. So wherever there is an opportunity for something to exist and carve out a life for itself, things will. Now, flies are really important because they're a foodstuff for lots of things. They also, I mean, flying things like insects, like bees, do an important job of pollination because without them, we wouldn't have half the food productivity that we do. Moths are another form of insect that does a lot of pollination, particularly of night flowering plant species. So flies are just relatives of these things, and they exist because they're given an opportunity to exist, and nature is diversified, and wherever there is an opportunity for something to evolve, unpredated and with access to energy and an energy supply, it will exist. Now, whether or not it fits with our game plan, nature doesn't care, because nature didn't uh, evolve things with human health and well-being in mind. It evolved everything to compete with everything else, and it really is the survival of the fittest. Okay, thanks so much for that question, Dudu, via your little one. Henry, good morning. Good morning, Eusebius. Good morning, Chris. Go ahead, Henry. What question have you got for us? Thank you. I would like to speculate on Chris's previous um, episode where he said that they're going to do a test in space and whether you can hear a scream in space. So we were always told that sound has a vibrational as well as a frequency component. So if you can hear somebody scream in space, does it mean that you can use a speaker system, Bang & Olufsen, for instance, to propel spacecraft? Hello, Henry. Well, first of all, let's explain what, what is a sound wave. Well, a sound wave is a compression wave. If you imagine a speaker moving in and out, the speaker is pushing on the air and compressing it. The air molecules then push into other air molecules and compress them, and the whole wave moves along as a compression, a bit like a Newton's cradle. I push some air in and it pushes some more air and it pushes on some more air and at the other end of the Newton's cradle is your eardrum and the air molecules hitting your eardrum push on your eardrum and make it move with the same pattern as the speaker which is how you hear the sound that's come out of that speaker. Now the fewer air molecules there are, theoretically, the less hard the push on your eardrum is going to be because I'll push on an air molecule and it will push on a couple of other air molecules but I won't be moving very many air molecules so the pressure on my eardrum to move it is going to be small because very few molecules are hitting it so therefore the apparent sound is going to be really low. Now if we 
and that's what I'm expecting our experiment, which is actually going to take off tomorrow. We're going to we're going to launch the balloon with the screams on board, including a lady from Cape Town telling her kids to clean their bedrooms, which is fantastic. We're going to send it up tomorrow, and we're going to record the results. So I will I will play you the results of what screams sound like, where the air is incredibly thin, just on the margins of space. Hopefully next week, assuming all goes to plan. If it doesn't, we've mocked it up by pumping the whole apparatus down in a vacuum chamber in my friend Dave's back garden. And we've made a recording of that to show that it, it does does seem to fit with our theory. I mean, this is not our theory. It's, it's what science tells us is going to happen. In terms of propelling a spacecraft, well, the only way you can actually get some propulsion from this is if you push on something and something therefore pushes back on you. That's how a rocket works, because it pushes the gas out of the back of the rocket very hard. And if you push on something really hard because of Isaac Newton's third law, that thing pushes back on you equally hard in the opposite direction. If you had a sound wave in space, it would have maybe one atom per cubic metre to push on. So although sound could transmit in space, because there is the odd atom floating about which could bash into another atom or molecule, the force you're going to generate is going to be so inconsequentially small that you'll be waiting a really long time to go anywhere, I'm afraid. So probably a non-starter, that one. A rocket or an iron drive engine, probably a better start. 702 The Naked Scientist Patrick, good morning Hi, good morning Hi, good morning I was just wondering why we and other mammals have tetrahydrocannabinol receptors in our brain and how did how did it evolve? Hmm. Hello Patrick Did you get that Chris? I did, yeah and the answer is and the relevance just for people who are not familiar with what Patrick is referring to THC, tetrahydrocannabinol is one of the psychoactive constituents which is produced by the marijuana plant. And so when people take marijuana, either they swallow it, eat it or smoke it, or even use one of these new sublingual sprays which are being produced medicinally, then the chemical in there, the THC, gets into the bloodstream and it docks with receptors for that particular chemical, which are actually there are receptors for these chemicals all over the body in many tissues and also in the brain, particularly in the brain's hypothalamus. So why is it there? And the answer is, actually, the brain didn't evolve with using marijuana in mind. What happened is that there is a chemical which is in your brain. It's called anatomide. And these receptors are naturally tuned to that chemical, but it's very similar in shape and structure to tetrahydrocannabinol. And so when you use that plant component, it fools your brain into thinking that the natural signals are there, like anatomide, and so it has the same effect, although it tends to have a more exaggerated effect because the THC is present in much higher concentrations than the brain's own endogenous nerve transmitter would be, and it tends to hang around for much longer as well. So it's subverting a system which already naturally exists in the body for other purposes. And you can see there's a parallel example with opium, morphine. The poppy, if you extract the sap of the poppy certain types of poppy anyway, you can extract opium, morphine molecules. Opium is actually a mixture of morphine and papaverine. And the morphine binds to opioid receptors, which are present in the nervous system. And those naturally see small proteins called endorphins and encephalins that your brain makes itself. And that's what those receptors are there for. But the opium can bind to the same targets and bind even better than your brain's own chemicals and for longer. So it tends to produce the same effects, but more intense. So it's another example of a plant chemical that has subverted or is subverting 
your own neurochemistry. And it's not, again, because those plants have evolved to do that. It just so happens that they use those molecules for various things. And sometimes it's because they've evolved these chemicals to get rid of insects because plants make these chemicals as a toxic deterrent to poison the nervous systems of things that would try and eat them. And because they've evolved to do that to other living things, they, not surprisingly, overlap with the nervous system operation in us because we're all you know, derived from common ancestors one way or another. And therefore, our nervous systems tend to use very similar kinds of chemistries and wiring systems. Peter, good morning. Thank you so much for holding on. What science questions do you have for us? Chris, I know you're a medical doctor. Are you also a PhD? Am I also a what, sorry? PhD. Uh, PhD. Yes, I, I actually um, have this... Um, <laughs> Well, I did a PhD in the middle of my medical degree, so I'm like that, you see. I'm hopelessly overeducated. So I went to medical school, and then I got hooked on neuroscience and how the brain works, and so I then went and did an extra degree in neuroscience, and then I thought, well, I really like science, so I don't just want to go back and do only clinical things now. So then I went and did a PhD in the middle of my clinical degree, and I finished that, having done a PhD in gene therapy and uh, virology, because people can believe that viruses are a good way to, to do gene therapy. And then I returned to my clinical job and then c- carried on with my clinical training. And I now work as a, a consultant medic half the week. And I do naked scientist type stuff the other half of the week. I do all that at Cambridge University. So I have a lot of fun. And about two, three years ago, Queen Mary University of London gave me an honorary doctorate. So I went from being... At one time I was just doctor. Then I became doctor, doctor. And that was a joke. And then I became doctor, doctor, doctor. So I have three doctors. <laughs> Dr. Cubed. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I'm not like that. <laughs> a satisfied with with the naked scientist C V. What question do you have to try and stump him? Yes, the question is <laughs> We've established the credentials. That's good. We can move on. <laughs> Chris, when I drive a manual car, I think we spoke about this before, but I'll be honest, I was not very, uh, I didn't quite understand your, your explanation. Oh. But let's, let's just try again. When you roll down, when the car is rolling down um, um, a hill, mm-hmm. right, and it's in neutral, and you look at the petrol consumption, as the car goes faster, the consumption goes down. And as it slows down, the consumption goes up. So in short, uh, covering the same distance, uh, if it moves faster, it's going to consume less. And then when uh, it is going slower, it consumes more. Okay. Why is that? Because the distance is the same. You cover the same distance and you're in neutral, okay. but you seem to be consuming more okay. uh, um, uh, fuel when, you, when, when, you, when you're going faster than when you're going slower. Crystal clear question, Peter. Uh, um, yeah, Chris, is there a relationship between speed and consumption? Yeah, there is. And the way that these gauges work is that they are looking at the rate of fuel burn. And in modern engines, diesel or petrol, because it's all engine managed and it knows how much fuel is being injected into the engine with every piston stroke, then it knows the rate of fuel consumption. Now, if the engine is in neutral, it's going to be ticking over. And that's going to be, for a one and a half litre diesel engine, it's going to be getting through, I don't know, about 200 mils of fuel an hour at low tick over because these engines are pretty efficient. So if you're coasting downhill in neutral, you're burning 200 mils of fuel an hour, regardless of how far the car goes. But if it's going downhill fast, then it's integrating what's the speed of the car and 
how much fuel am I burning? Oh, okay. Therefore, the rate of fuel consumption will be this number of miles per gallon or kilometres per gallon or kilometres per litre, depending upon which country you're in. And it will just compute that on the basis of the recorded speed of the car and the documented uh, rate of fuel consumption. And, and if you then put the car in gear, then obviously the engine speed's going to increase because when it's, when it's actually running faster and you're, you've got your foot on the accelerator and actually driving along to sustain that speed, you've got to put energy in to maintain that speed and do work against air resistance. But when you're just rolling down a hill, the gravity is accelerating you and it's doing work against the air resistance and probably accelerating you some more. And yet the fuel burn is going to stay the same because the car was, was in neutral, just ticking over. So that's why you get that apparent reduction in fuel consumption because gravity is doing the work for you so the car's not having to burn as much fuel. Tony, good morning. What's your question? Good morning, Eusebius and Dr. Chris. I'd like to know, is it fair to say that life is bacteria or bacteria is life? I'm saying this based on the fact that any organism is, in one way or the other, a descendant of a bacterium or a combination of bacterium. Um, we, we, we also know that bacteria... Uh, invented multicellularity. And some of these lineages of bacteria went on to evolve into different kinds of being, including ourselves. So um, can, we, can we then say that, that uh, bacteria is life and is there consciousness? <laughs> okay, well, the, the last is a bonus question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, most of what you're Chris, saying, Tony, yeah. is that absolutely true in the sense that life got started on Earth pretty promptly. We've got evidence for life processes, whatever they were, about four billion years back in time. And there are rocks which have been recovered from parts of Western Australia, the Jack Hills Formation, for example, where there are inclusions in these zircons, these little crystals, and they show... We're talking about isotope ratios and life favouring certain ratios of forms of chemicals over another. There are evidence of those sorts of ratios in these very ancient rocks. And we know life got started here very early, but we also know that was very primitive, very simple life. It was probably a kind of bacterial life. Now, whether those bacteria were very similar to the bacteria we have today is a mute point. We have to work out that from doing more experiments and understanding more as we discover more. But certainly it was some kind of simple, single-celled life. And we know that that was very successful, but also very boring. It didn't do anything in terms of becoming any more specialised than that for about three and a half billion years. And then all of a sudden, about 500 to 600 million years ago, something happened. And these single-celled organisms began to team up to form collaborations in what we call metazoal life, things made of lots of cells working together. Now, how that transition happened, we don't know. But we know that, exactly as you suggest, we are all descendants of bacteria. And the evidence for that is I can take a bacterial cell, which I haven't actually had much of a relationship with for billions of years, and the genetic code that it understands is exactly the same give or take, to the genetic code that my body understands. And there's the evidence that we have a three and a half to four billion year shared history. Why this happened, though, the way it did, we don't know. And that's what evolutionary biologists are trying to solve all the time. Thanks, Tony. That's all we have time for today. What a stunning last question to end the segment with. Really, really interesting. Never thought about bacterium in that way. Chris, thanks for sharing your knowledge. Have a beautiful weekend.
I'm going to do my best, and uh, if anyone wants to track us, we'll be tweeting out where our balloon goes. So if you want to follow us, we'll give you the, the web address, and you can follow it on Google Maps. We've got a special web address to follow our balloon, which is going to take screams to the edge of space, and we'll, we'll play them for you next week and let you know how we got on.